Hello, this is S.T. Joshi, author of I Am Providence, The Life and Times of H.P. Lovecraft, and you're listening to the H.P. Lovecast podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of the HP Lovecast podcast. I'm Michelle Brittany, editor of the James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with special emphasis on horror and spy genres. And I'm Nicholas Dyack, a pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, Industrial Music, Horror Studies, and the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Michelle and I also co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarland. On today's episode, we'll be digging into Arkham House's Cthulhu 2000, a Lovecraftian anthology. Edited by Jim Turner, we'll be discussing two short stories from this collection. The first one is The Barons, written by F. Paul Wilson, and the second one is The Faces at Pine Dunes, written by Ramsey Campbell. To provide context for these stories, we'll start with a brief overview of Arkham House, Jim Turner, and this anthology. Arkham House was founded by August Derleth and Donald Wandry in 1939 after trying unsuccessfully to publish a collection of H.P. Lovecraft's best weird fiction titled The Outsider and Others. While the initial focus of the publishing house was to preserve Lovecraft's best fiction, Arkham House also focused more generally on promoting the weird fiction genre. Over the decades, it has been a who's who's list of authors, Ray Bradbury, Robert E. Howard, Frank Belknap Long, Clark Ashton Smith, Robert Block, as well as C. Barry Quinn, Ramsey Campbell, and Brian Lumley. Interestingly, Arkham House was not a financial success, according to Derelith, who wrote in 1970 that the publishing house's earnings never exceeded their expenses. Derelith died in 1971, and his children became co-owners of Arkham House. Wandry stepped in briefly as editorial director, but left within two years. In 1973, Jim Turner stepped in as editorial director. As editor, he expanded the publishing house's range of authors to include writers such as Michael Shea, Bruce Sterling, Michael Bishop, and others who were writing in the science fiction and fantasy genres. This change shifted the line of titles from Arkham House's roots in weird and horror fiction. Turner edited Cthulhu 2000, a Lovecraftian anthology in 1995. In his introduction to the 18 short stories, Turner was critical of the mythos stories being published up to that point as, quote, uh, banal modern horror stories and, quote, latter-day mythos uh, pastiche. For this anthology, he stated that he was curating the readers to stories that were not great Lovecraftian tales, but instead were, quote, great stories in some way inspired by Lovecraft. Reviewing the anthology for Arcane Ma- Magazine in May 1996, Paul Petten- Pettengill rated Cthulhu 2000 with an 8 out of 10, 
commenting that, quote, Cthulhu 2000 is a strong collection and it's a damn fine read. Turner left Arkham House in 1996 and founded Golden Griffin Press, continuing to publish similar titles. He edited a second Lovecraftian anthology, Eternal Lovecraft, The Persistence of HPL in Popular Culture, in 1998. Turner passed away in 1999 at the age of 54. Golden Griffin Press shuttered in 2015, and Arkham House has not published any titles since 2010. Now that we have some context, let's turn to the plot of F. Paul Wilson's The Barons. Kathleen McKelston, an accountant, receives a message from John Croyton, a former college lover who wants to connect since he is going to be in her area. She had thought of him occasionally over the year and was intrigued, so she arranges to meet for lunch. Over lunch, John brings up a book project that he's working on to document the origins of a select number of folk tales. He is particularly interested in the Jersey Devil, who has its roots in Pine Barren, where he remembers Mac is from. He relates that he had tried to gather information from the citizens of the rural communities, but couldn't get anyone to open up to him. Here's where Mac could help him by introducing John to some of the local folk, so he could complete his research. Mac decides to help him, so they head off to Pine Barrens, a large forested region in of New Jersey that sounded more like a pocket untouched by modern influences. Mac still remembers some of the folk, so they go to visit Jasper Moliner. They chat over Applejack, and Jasper relates details about Jersey Devil, as well as some mysterious pine lights. Mac notices that John perks up at the mention of the purposeful floating lights. Jasper didn't remember too much about the lights, so he suggests the pair visit Gus, who lives in a more remote part of the region. They meet Russ, or Gus, a gun-toting recluse. He provides some additional details and reluctantly shows the pair where he has just seen the pine lights the night before. Gus warns them not to catch the pine lights and to stay clear of them. In fact, the fine piney folk were more scared of the lights than Jersey Devil. Gus leaves them, and eventually, as the afternoon grows late, Mac and John decide to head out too, only to become lost and seemingly end up right back where Gus had left them. They make camp, and it is well into the night when the pine lights are seen coming through the area. John climbs up in a tree to see them better, and needless to say, he has a close encounter with one that leaves his arm burned. In the morning, they pack up and head back to their jeep, only to find a cluster around the vehicle of some local piney folk. John strikes up a conversation and asks about a place where supposedly nothing grows. They are well aware of such a place and are none too interested in showing John where that place is. One local, Fred, does eventually show John and Mac the location. Mac doesn't like the place one bit, and sensing her unease and probably not wanting her to ask him any additional questions, John quickly notes the coordinates and they leave. Back in the city, they part ways. Mac runs into John a couple of times, and each time he seems more haggard and still afflicted with the skin infection from the burn. 
In fact, it has spread. She corners him in his hotel room and asks her to give him two days' time to sort himself out. After a cop asks her if she has seen him, he has stolen a book from Miss Katonic University archives, she returns to his hotel room. He is gone, but she found the book and deduces that he is at the place where nothing grows. She arrives there, and there is a vortex of cascading light and roaring wind, and John in the middle of the bald spot. She has no choice but to enter the circle so she can save him. Once at his side, she realizes that everything is gone, and she is behind a veil, transported to another place or reality. She tries to lift John, but he is rooted to the ground, and she soon discovers just how rooted he is. In the aftermath, John is gone, and Mac is forever changed by what she has seen. Her life purpose focuses on her cosmic experience and her return to the other side of the veil. I really enjoyed this story. I thought it was excellent. I thought it was well-paced, well-written, and I really enjoyed how it incorporated the spirit of cosmic horror into the tale Sudley, such as building suspense, tension, and some of the visual cues, but uh, keeping them sparingly so that uh, much was hidden uh, so that the reader could kind of fill in on their own. Uh, with that in mind, uh, Nick, I'd love to hear, what did you think of the story? What, what are your initial thoughts? Very shockingly, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, definitely a, a, a highlight a story that I've read in a while. I'd only ever read one other F. Paul Wilson short story before, and it was uh, Feelings from Tales from the Lost, uh, Volume 1. And I didn't like that story. I thought it was too much, uh, basically, Stephen King's thinner, <laughs> this rehashed. And, and even this story, you know, it feels familiar. It has those Lovecraftian tropes of, you know, peeking into other dimensions and whatnot. But even though this story f feels familiar, it still feels unique. Uh, it has its own spin, its own voice, and it's actually a really fun story as well. In fact, if there's one thing, and only one thing I'm going to fault this story for, <laughs> that is its presence of Applejack. Um... I, as folks out there know, I, I love my cocktails, I love my spirits, and uh, the characters in this uh, story, they drink Applejack, and to me, I'm like, awesome, because Applejack, you know, goes back to the colonial era, it came from uh, New Jersey, where this uh, story takes place, and, uh, you know, the idea that, you know, these uh, folks that live in the Barrens are moonshining Applejack is awesome, I like it, except there's one line, and one line only, uh, let me find it real quick. It's a uh, Jasper calls it sipping whiskey. Applejack's not whiskey. <laughs> App whiskey is made from grain. Applejack is made from apples. It's more like a brandy. You'll find it in the brandy and cognac section at the alcohol store. You will not find it in the whiskey section. However, that's my only beef with the story. I'm going to assume that it's just, you know, you know, Jasper's is talking colloquially. Yeah, it's a sipping whiskey. That's that's what I'm going to go with. But that's the only fault I could find for this story. That and it really made me wish I had a bottle of Laird's Applejack, but I am fresh out. <laughs> so, my minor grief aside. <laughs> Michelle, so, so, some observations from the, the story for you. <laughs> well, I think uh, let's start with the characters first. Um, I loved Kathleen. 
I thought she was a great character. She seemed like an every woman. Um, and given the fact that this story was written, I believe um, it was back in 1990 when there wouldn't have been um, as many female characters in Lovecraft and Lovecraft-inspired stories. Um, she was a fresh, a breath, uh, a breath of fresh air um, to have a woman um, as the lead character. Um, instantly, I felt that I could connect more to the story, being a woman myself. Um, and she was just, you know, she had settled into her career. She was a successful accountant. She was comfortable in her life. Um, well, coming out of the 80s, she's probably a borderline yuppie, which is, which is fine, you know, because mm -hmm. we had a lot of that portrayal in films and stuff back in the 80s. Yeah, so, um, I thought she was actually, um... She was a believable character, and I, I liked her. Uh, you know, Wilson wrote a character that I liked. Um, and I even feel that John Croyton was um, a believable character. He was likable. Um, and even though he definitely had character flaws, um, I still liked him. What about you? So... Kathleen, I think what really helps her character is, you know, she's she's sort of the scully to uh, Crichton's Mulder. Um, oh, that's she, a good good analogy, yeah. Uh, although they're not FBI agents, but, you know, she's the skeptic, you know. Mm -hmm. she, she's she's helping grind, uh, ground this story because the, the story gets kind of weird, you know. They're, they're out in the middle of nowhere. There's... Uh, you know, a, a weird spot that's probably some sort of trans-dimensional portal or something. Um, and Crichton is bringing in all this kind of, hey, you know, crazy books and all this other stuff. But but not only is she the skeptic, but she's also an expert of the area. You know, Crichton is coming to her because she's an expert of the Barrens. That's where she kind of grew up. So, you know, she, she, uh, she has a knowledge base and she uses it well. So she's you know, a, she's not just a blank slate character. She she has a function. She fulfills it. And we as readers can also ground ourselves with her kind of, you know, you called her an every woman, you know, and that, that helps with this. I mean, by the end of the story, she's transformed, obviously. Um, so she has a, a big character growth as well. As for Crichton, I liked him as well. And I think this is kind of a testament to F. Paul Wilson's writing because it comes out Crichton may not have been so honest with some things. <gasps> no. I'm, you mean he, he lied? He, he, may have, he, he may have fibbed a little bit. He may, he may not actually be in school. <laughs> he may not have a book deal. He may have stolen a book or two. And the thing is, is I think Wilson, he has a little bit of foreshadowing uh, of, you know, Crichton and his motivations when he's really done, but I, I think, I, I'm not going to call him a con man, but there's some attributes of it there. A good con man, even after the con is lifted, you don't feel jilted, and you want to like Crichton, and I do like Crichton. We've read enough Lovecraftian uh, fiction here where we see characters like Crichton all the time, and they're usually the protagonists of the story. You know, he's not the protagonist. He's second fiddle. But we're going along with it because he knows kind of what's going on, what he's researching. Even though he's he's elusive about a couple of things. What are you doing on that map? Nothing. Um, 
So there's some good foreshadowing there that if you were to reread the the story, you'd be like, ah, oh, I should have seen it coming. Ah, oh, I should have seen it coming. But because he's likable, and since also we're anchored to Kathleen, we, we see him through her eyes as well, that, you know, she wants to see the best in him, she wants him to be successful, and of course they have, you know, old romantic ties as well. So when he does, you know, when it's revealed that, you know, he's stolen books, he's on the lamb, he's not really in school, I, I genuinely felt a little, oh, crap, <laughs> I can't believe he did that to me. But at the same time, I don't hate him for it, too, because then I'm kind of going back and justifying what he's doing and why. So, very both of them are very complex characters, and both of them, I think, you know, getting away from normal Lovecraft characters that are, let's just be honest, two-dimensional, you know, uh, stuck-up academics who <laughs> faint at the slightest progavation. We have two greatly rounded-out characters. And I can say that... Uh... Croyton does not faint uh, at all through the uh, story, and even though his arm is burned, um, you know, he doesn't faint at the sight of it. And, and, and getting drunk on Applejack as well. There, there's no, uh, you know, faint and blacking out from that as well. We got some stout, hearty adventurers in this story. Right. Um, one of the other things that I liked about the story, um, and this is something that we talked about uh, when we discuss the vast of night and that is the fact that the story doesn't get bogged down in a in a romantic relationship that that tends to derail a story or has the potential um in this particular case uh mac and john were lovers in college but that that is a period that's gone by and even though mac does mention at some point that she does still have some feelings for him it doesn't derail the story it just adds a little bit of flavor um that just seasons the story just a little bit but without taking away from it yeah not not everyone needs to fall in love and old flames can die out and not be re reignited you know i think of raiders of lost ark you know indiana jones and marion you know have long since broken up but of course as hollywood movies dictate they're together at the end and you know that's fine for that you know uh it happens it happens uh, love stories are always good but even if they don't happen it's good as well because you know people don't always get together all it does is it adds a little backstory that propels these two characters together uh, Crichton is coming to uh, Kathleen, aka Mac, because uh, you know he knows her from the past. He he knows, you know, he's one of the only people that are privileged to the knowledge that she grew up in the Barrens. You know, she knows what's around there. Um, yeah, and she, she at the beginning of the story, she's even like, uh, "Who told you that?" And he's like, "Well, you did." You know. <laughs> oh, forehead slap. Yep. Yep. Um. We were talking a little bit about there's some subtle foreshadowing to Crichton's character, and there's some other kind of flourishes in this story from Wilson's writing, and that's uh, he 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 name he drops an instance uh, in the beginning when they're talking to Jasper, which is the first folk they come across in the Barrens, and he, the passage reads: "The old man beamed and did what many pineys do. He repeated a phrase three times. Did he now? Did he now?" Did he really now? And the thing is, is Wilson brings that up a couple more times. He doesn't draw attention to it. And if you're not looking for it, you just gloss it over. But uh, other characters that uh, Crichton and Kathleen encounter, they also repeat themselves three times. Uh, Jasper again says, but it's out there. It's out there. It's surely out there. Uh, Gus, after he's been kind of, you know, doing a little bit of Applejack chugging, um, 
and uh, Crichton is kind of buttering him up how good it is. He's like, yeah, your Applejack's good? He's like, that it is, sir. That it is. That it surely is. And even at the end, when they get to Razorback Hill and they're talking to the denizens there, you know, one of the folks says, got it, got it, got it. And, you know, those, those inflections and everything, you could totally hear it. And it adds, again, adds some charm, it adds some character, and it really helps. It's these subtle things that really help set the story and the setting, that really grinds it in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, going on from there, the local folk, you made the observation when we were discussing offline about this, is the fact that every, every folk person, you know, that there wasn't like animosity necessarily there there might have been reluctance but there's some begrudging scenes but nothing like you said hostile yeah and i mean you even said that well are we gonna have uh you know i don't know like uh torture porn or hostile moments yeah uh, in the outback or you know what might happen and i mean in today that might happen in such a story, but in this story... Yeah, the, the folks of Razorback Hill and the other folks of the Barrens, you know, the, the, they're... I don't know what the proper terms for this, and I don't know what, what's PC to say or not, so apologies, immense, but, you know, they, they would be considered, like, you know, simple folk or maybe backwater folk or something. Um, but there's been a trend in a lot of films, especially as of late with, like, the Wrong Turn series that portrays, you know, they, they, they have antagonistic hillbillies that rape kill and cannibalize and i could totally see this story going in that route with some other author that was trying to go for more you know shock horror or you know extreme horror you know i could totally see you know uh kathleen probably getting sexually assaulted while everyone else is devouring Crichton because he's kind of a chubby guy <laughs> and, but it didn't go that route the, the, the story isn't punching down it's portraying these folks as 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 best as possible. Now, now, granted, the Razorback folk—they're deformed, but that's because they live too close to a dimensional rift that's messing up their genetics. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, you know, but it's not like Lovecraft's portrayal of the similar folk. You know, you can go back and read *Beyond the Wall of Sleep*, where Lovecraft is less than favorable of the folks of like the Catskill Mountains, for instance. So, it was nice to read uh, a story where. You know, I, I guess in the 80s, there was a very, in 90s, and even today, a big rash of city folk driving to the country. The car breaks down, so the, the local folks are going to kill them. And that, it's nice not to see that. This, this story is very nice that it does things that, you know, other stories want to do. This one says, uh-uh, I'm going to do my own thing. Yeah, and I think that uh, throughout the entire story, we we witness that with Wilson that he does take the twists. He doesn't take the the path that's been well worn by a lot of others. And that again, uh, to use your words, that, that's part of the charm of the story. Yeah, even you know, when this first when the story first started, back in my mind is how do you get because Kathleen is she starts the story off, she's she has an accountant firm. How do you get someone in an everyday life doing something that's crazy and cosmic or whatnot? Now, in this story is, you know, they, they actually bring in a Miskatonic University and Crichton is the catalyst for it. So unless we know some crazy folks in real life that went to the school and they're going to come hunt us down to be on an adventure with them, we're not going to get into any crazy uh, adventures. But... Uh, uh, I don't know. You went to, to some uh, kind of small... <laughs> Washington High School. There might be somebody there that's into Lovecraft. 
You know, there, there's a point I'm making, but as it came out, I got totally derailed. I guess what I was just trying to say is, is it's nice that the story, it, it is familiar, but it takes its own route. I mean, you know, it, it starts out every day, and it continues to still be every day, but still does extraordinary things. We said earlier that, you know, it, it plays with, you know, the Lovecraft tropes, Dimensional Portal, and all that other stuff, but it does its own thing. And yes, growing up in Clama, Washington, I didn't want to say it, but it sort of reminds me of the setting of this, you know, being deep in the forest and all that fun stuff. Um, I like it. Now, talking about kind of copying things, and I don't mean copying negatively, Back uh, earlier, not this year, actually later last year, you and I, we had a different podcast episode where we talked about Nick Mamatos's anthology, um, Wonder and Glory Forever. And there was a short story in that anthology by Fred Chappell called Weird Tales. And I see uh, Wilson's The Barons as kind of very similar to Chappell's story. They, they kind of accomplished the same thing, but albeit differently. Um, in Weird Tales, you had a character named Croydon who does what? He sequesters himself into his room. He's doing all this research. And what does he do? He opens up a portal to, we suspect, is Antarctica at some point in time. Um, he's playing with crazy cosmic dimensional stuff. Well, that's Crichton, you know. Uh, he's doing the same similar research that Croydon is doing. It's just that instead of locking himself in his room and executing all this stuff, he's out in the forest trying to find the barons, the, the actual patch to, you know, execute his plan of trying to go to another dimension or whatnot. The, the big difference is is execution between both stories. Croydon's uh, slash uh, Chapel story takes a traditional Lovecraft approach. It's very, hey everyone, I'm in my room, I'm reading lots of books, I'm kind of milling about, which is fine, but at the same time can be a little boring at times, you know, when all the action just occurs in your study. On the other hand, Wilson, he takes it out into the, to, to the forest. This is more action-oriented. Uh, Crichton, despite, you know, you know he has some faults, even though we like him, he's still, at the end of the day, not afraid to roll up his sleeves, get dirty, or stick his arm inside of a light UFO barren light thing and get molelated by it. But, you know, it, it's again, both stories kind of accomplish something very similar. Both characters get a glimpse into, you know, some reality that's not our reality. It's just that you know, one story is more, I'm at my desk doing it that way. The other one is, I'm out in the forest being action-adventure oriented. And I applaud it. I, I think it's executed greatly. Yeah, um, that's a good um, comparison with the Chapel story because I hadn't thought about the fact that we basically have very similar narrative beats, but that um, whereas you have it very contained in Chapel's story, with regards to Wilson, it is out there, it's out in, you know, the wide open spaces, and so there's just seems to be more room to breathe, and so you become a bit more engaged, and you also tend to be a little more relaxed at what's kind of going on, while at the same time, Wilson is able to build the tension and suspense that needs to be there for this story. I, I think, and I don't mean this negatively, because 
reason that we talked about Chapel stories because it was one of the most standout stories in Wonder and Glory Forever. But, you know, it relies on the reader to be very already very well proficient in Lovecraft and Lovecraft read. I mean, Lovecraft is a character in that story. You know, it sets the blueprint that this is all kind of conspiracy theory-ish, that Lovecraft died at the hands of a cult, the same people that Croydon was investigating. Wilson's story doesn't need that. Yeah, there's some nods to, like, overt Lovecraft. You know, there's a Miskatonic University, but, you know, when he steals a book, you're expecting, oh, Necronomicon. He doesn't take the Necronomicon. He takes some other book, which is awesome. It shows that, you know, you could borrow a little bit from Lovecraft, but you don't have to borrow the same things other people are borrowing from Lovecraft. And you don't have to be a Lovecraft aficionado. You could read um, Wilson's story... Uh, unto itself. I mean, even as you said when you're talking about Turner's introduction, this is a mythos story, but at the same time, it's also a Lovecraft-inspired story. It doesn't have to be a mythos story. It's still successful through both lenses. Yeah. Um, the other thing with regards to that is Wilson did uh, a collection after the, he wrote this story. He wrote this story in 1990, and then I think it was in 1992 he came out with a book called The Barons and Other Stories. So, you know, I do think that he went back and explored this area a bit more. Um, so Time that, to check out that book. Yeah, so it's actually kind of neat, you know, because... And that's, that is one of the nice things about Lovecraft and his mythos and also the Dreamlands, which we don't touch on quite as much uh, in our podcast, the fact that th there's a large sandbox to play in. And Wilson kind of like took, a, took the, some of those elements and turned out a really interesting and entertaining story. Well, and that's what we try to you know, talk most about on this podcast is who are the people playing in the sandbox? Because that's mm -hmm. where the cool stuff is coming out of. And the Wilson story is definitely a cool stuff. Yeah, definitely. I think another area that um, he uh, uses kind of the the concept of Lovecraft, and that is the locale, the use of what's familiar. So, um, you know, the Barrens is an actual location. I didn't know that. Um, and Nick, actually, you did some research, a little bit of research on that. Wikipedia-ing. <laughs> well, hey. You it's know, there. It, it's it. a start. It's a start. Um but the barons give kind of that New England feel that we would get from the Shadow over Innsmouth um, and a number of other stories well, that are set. A folky feel to it, which you mm -hmm. see in a lot of Lovecraft stuff. Yeah, and I mean, we we get that folksy feel from uh, James Chambers stuff that's mm -hmm. set in Knox, Knoxport? Nixport? Nixport. Um, so, you know, here is another person that's created you know, an, a fictional place um, that's very much rooted um, in, the, in a real locale. So, kind of going back to the chapel thing, uh, we, we sometimes ask this question on this podcast after reading Mama Tossa's Wonder and Glory Forever, is, you know, one of the gauges of these stories is, does it inspire a sense of awe and wonder? So, Let's ask that about the Barons. Does the Barons invoke a sense of awe and wonder? Um, 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I I mean we I uh, I mean there's a reason yeah Chapels does it and let's just be honest Wilson's story follows Chapels story in those beats and it evokes the exact same emotions at the very very end when Crichton is you know he's he's lifted the veil he's peeking behind it and um, our our main lady you know runs crosses that threshold and now she's exposed to it you know this is all stuff that. You know, just right outside of our, you know, grasp, grasp of reality, there is something else out there. And what do you do after you, you just peek it? You see that tiny slither, and, you know, she can't comprehend it. And, you know, Crichton has spent, you know, years, if not decades, researching this stuff. He's prepared, but what happens to him? He's, you know, he his arms turn all tentacly, I guess. Not really tentacles. They're like, they're described as like potato eye stalks or something very very differently but he is transformed and transmuted and transported yeah and i mean how do you i mean that i think mac in the best way that she's able to that's her descriptor and you know it one of the things about this story is that it's very rooted folklore is very rooted in nature it's rooted in the in the region and you know not to get ahead of ourselves, but as a kind of a sneak peek, we'll, we'll also get that in uh, Ram, Ramsey Campbell's story, too. Yeah, b- both of them share a very similar sense of folkiness, being by the spooky forest, very simple folk as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the story, you know, uh, Mac, uh, you know, she sees behind beyond the veil. Her life is forever transformed. She now assumes the role that Crichton had uh assumed you know she she shutters her business lives off savings she's gonna go and continue what he started and you know and and it's totally motivated by the awe and the wonder Mm -hmm. and uh now she uh has that sense of trying to answer big questions that coyton was looking to answer i mean what do you do i mean when when the truth or i'm I'm gonna use the truth in quotations here because you know, again, glimpsing a, a different reality is not exactly... All it does is tells you that your reality is not the only one. But what do you do? You, you really have two binary choices. And we see them both in Lovecraft and Lovecraft successor writing. Either you go crazy, and that's it. Or you embrace it, and you plunge forward through it. Which, at the end, you'll probably go crazy anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think that on... Kind of that note, um, let's take a quick musical uh, intermission before moving on to our second story, The Faces at Pine Dunes by Ramsey Campbell. All right, welcome back. We are now at part two of this episode of HP Lovecast. Um, we will be talking about The Faces at Pine Dunes by Ramsey Campbell. Michael and his parents live a nomadic lifestyle, living in their caravan, residing in the outskirts of small towns for short periods of time. They anchor in at Pine Dunes, a caravan area by the sea. Michael's parents are odd. His mom is resigned, as if given up. His dad is intimidating and grotesquely fat. The duo argue, which makes living in the caravan claustrophobic for Michael. Also, his parents mysteriously leave the caravan each night. Michael's mom wants them all to keep moving, while Michael's dad wants to stay in Pine Dunes. Michael surprisingly surprisingly, agrees with his dad. 
One night, Michael decides to explore the forest nearby. It gets really dark, and he gets a little lost. He finds a passage among the foliage, but he eventually makes it out. Unfazed, he decides to take a bus into town into a bar. There he meets June, who likes to trip on acid. Michael forms a relationship with June, and at her suggestion, takes up employee at the bar. June loans Michael a book on witchcraft. Scanning the book, he realizes the same towns mentioned in its pages correspond to the very same towns that he and his family have lived at. Michael begins to investigate. He goes to a library to research pine dunes, and eventually he happens upon a box kept secret by his dad, which is full of notebooks on Cthulhu, Glacky, and other cosmic forces. But Michael dismisses these findings initially. However, things become progressively worse. Michael has June over for an uncomfortable meal of his folks. The strange dreams Michael is having are starting to manifest. His parents are acting weirder and weirder. One night at work, Michael leaves with June in a hurry as he suspects something rotten is going down. They travel into the dark woods and deep inside in a clearing is a giant blob mass thing made up of Michael's parents who gurgly tell him that the gr about the great old ones and his place within it all. Michael realizes his fate will be the same as his parents, and he accepts this. Alright, so Michelle, initial impressions on the faces of Pine at Pine Dunes. Well, like Wilson, I thought that it was a very well-written uh, short story. Um, and while I'll typically enjoy witch-oriented stories, uh, obviously I like Lovecraft, but I really had a difficult time connecting with this story. I love Campbell's writing, um, but I did find, and I know we'll, we'll touch on it more, but I did find that the narrative structure um, was challenging for me and made it less of a connection for me. It does feel a little disjointed. Uh, of the two, I, uh, surprisingly, you know, I found myself liking F. Paul Wilson's story a little bit more than Campbell's. And again, like you, I love Campbell's writing. Uh, when it comes to running around, you know, in the forest at night, and it's dark and creepy things are coming along, uh, I remember his short story, Dolls, and I thought, you know, that was kind of a better portrayal of kind of witchcrafty things and things that go, you know, crashing in the forest. But yeah, this one, the story starts off really disjointed and odd. You know, Michael, he's in his caravan. He leaves, he goes to the forest. He kind of gets lost. He, you know, gets attacked by thorns and it's dark and something sinister. And he leaves and his next course of action is, hey, I'll just go to town. And these things, this the progression of it just seems kind of odd. You know, I, just, I never got a sense of the character of why, you know, his story is starting out that way. Now, once he meets June, and he starts investigating things, and he actually has a purpose, then the story starts settling into a more comfortable area, and comfortable pace. And it, it definitely gets infinitely more interesting. And I love Campbell's, you know, poetry and his descriptions in the story they're all great even even when he's describing michael's dad i mean he finds new and creative ways just to describe not just how fat he is but just how grotesque and fleshly and bubbly is like just the act of like sitting on a bed or in his chair is just blah, 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 blah. you just it, ooh, the words literally ooze when you read them and so, yeah, the poetry's great. It's just a little disjointed at times. Yeah, I really got the sense that, that for me, this story felt like the narr narrative 
was more of a stream of consciousness, which I think is it works well given that Michael is a twenty about a twenty year old kid. He's on the cusp of adulthood. You know, he's easily distracted by shiny things in every <laughs> direction. So he's kind of, you know, popping from one subject to another. But for me as a reader and also about thirty years older, <laughs> um, you know, I found it challenging to really kind of connect with that. And honestly, I don't seek out those kind of narratives. There's a reason why there's certain like McCormick McCarthy stories I just don't read because they they tend to be more in that style of writing. Like I'll read The Road. That was a great story and you had the narrative signposts like, you know, grammar marks. Um but this one was even though it it grammatically was structured, it just felt like it ran on a lot. Um, and that's not a bad thing for people that like that narrative style. But for, for me, I don't really. Blood Meridian. Love it or loathe it? Uh, yeah. So <laughs> um, I did find the poetry. The He really... Camsey, uh, Ramsey Campbell gives a great sense of claustrophobia. The 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 overwhelming sense of presence of the father in everything and just how oppressive his presence is in everything and it just pervades through the entire story this is a very well written and it is an excellent lovecraft inspired story now the story does accomplish quite a a few i'm going to say progressive literature type things and the first one is i'm going to talk about the caravans because since they're british they say caravans over here in the states you know these would be campers and rvs and you know houses on trailers and of course i I think the first time i kind of made that connection was was watching the movie snatch and one of the characters goes (laughs) to buy a new caravan uh it's the character that's working for uh jason statham's character it's like uh you like dags? Oh, dags? Dogs! Yeah, I like dogs. I like caravans more, and he buys a really crappy camper. <laughs> but um, but the, even though the story takes place next to a really spooky forest, it's the it's the caravan I think is like the proper setting, and to me, uh, it's it's more effective than the nearby forest. Even though they go into the forest, it's spooky. There's something in the dark that's chasing him, and the thorns and tripping and all that other stuff. But it's within the caravan that uh, the most uncomfortable scenes happen. The walls are thin. There's no privacy. It, like you said, it's very claustrophobic. That's where all the uh, uneasy dialogue with uh, Michael's parents occur. It creaks like a haunted house. For Michael, it's also a prison. You know, he can't really leave. He can leave, but he can't go far. You know, later the car is destroyed. You know, uh, his father basically keeps him kind of on a tight leash here. But the more I think about the caravan, I keep thinking it's like the perfect, like, neo-Gothic place to live. Especially, like, in our current globalized world. I mean, vampires. How are vampires going to get around? Well, we saw the movie Near Dark. You know, they live in an RV. Uh, Our friends uh, Logan and Eric, they have a movie called There's No Such Thing as Vampires. How does that vampire get out and about in an RV? And, you know, that seems like in sheer contrast to what you would expect in gothic fiction, which is, you know, the big castle on the mountain or the haunted house deep in the swamp or the forest. Well, 
to, to me, you know, I think when most people think of campers, they probably think of the really tacky 70s and 80s Winnebago's or something, which don't look scary, but they do look kind of run down or something. But if you think about it, I, I, I think of campers as kind of, they, they can be gothic. They totally can be gothic. Gothic monsters, in order to survive this world, have to live in such a place in order to maintain their nomadic lifestyle, you know? If you're a vampire and you come into town and eat everyone up, you can't stay in town. You have to move somewhere else. And I guess what I'm trying to say is I think Ramsey Campbell's story here offers a, a nice transition of campers as... as a gothic locale, and he executes it as if it was a gothic and practical gothic locale. And I think that's brilliant. Yeah, uh, it also comes packaged with a lot of other context. For for instance, car- a caravan, you know, is like a nomadic caravan, you know, like in Egypt, but it's also uh, a caravan of individuals. And, you know, they become the caretakers and the vessels of old folklore and mysticism. So it fits right into, you know, that folksy kind of back to nature or close to nature and the environment. So he, he's spot on on picking the caravan as kind of that vessel for this story. Yeah, it get, it's not just practical, but it, it totally, it, it, in, in the most capable hands, you would elevate the, the sleepy, creaky camper into a gothic setting and he does it yeah and and like you said it the caravan the scenes in there are are uncomfortable and they're cringe worthy they, they are oh they're I, i'm not a big fan of cringe you know there's a reason why i don't watch the office and that's cringe comedy but you know there's those those moments in films that are very tenseful because they're very cringy um usually when a character is you know out of his class uh, social class talking to other characters or he's in a setting that he's definitely a fish out of water. Like, if I was Michael, I would do everything in my power not to bring June home to meet my you know, slothingly cute... You know what? Makes me think of what's eating Gilbert Grape. Mm-hmm. A little bit of that. Um, but... But I just live it. I mean, these these places are already small. I I think the the caravan they live in has one bedroom. He sleeps on a couch, I believe. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a, a kitchen. I mean, I've I've been in a camper. <laughs> I've seen, you know. But I also seen the very nice RVs. There's YouTube channels out there of you know folks with their cats driving around in these futuristic RVs. I don't think that would work as a gothic mode. But anyway, so superbly executed. Very very cringe cringing uh, moments in the camper um the other thing that i think campbell does really well that kind of like what wilson does is kind of turn things on its head is there is a scene towards the end where michael he's done his investigation now he's back at the camper and he comes across a box that his dad owns that he's expecting to find a whole bunch of books in and when he's when instead what he finds is a whole bunch of notebooks and it's in it's kind of in English, but he can't make sense of it. But it, but he sees words like Cthulhu and Glacky and all this other cosmic stuff um, that you know, obviously, uh, you know, probably taken over decades of research and firsthand accounts and whatnot. I mean, it's basically the end result of a typical Lovecraft character of let me write down all my notes before I die, and 
you know, a, a normal Lovecraft character, if they were to find a box of all these notebooks, you know, that's that's the end goal. That's the yippee skippy. I, I have found, you know, the the truth, the the secret knowledge, the everything I need is all in here. I'm gonna take it home, pour through all this knowledge. I might go mad in the process, or I'll or, or I'll learn, you know, the secret to stop the great evil or whatever. You know, it's it's the big linchpin in most of these stories. But not in Campbell's story. Michael comes across this. He reads some of it, and he's like, he thinks it's a joke. He dismisses it. He he dis you know he dismisses it as you know maybe his dad was part of like you know an old boys club or you know something you know the taken jest. But while a normal Lovecraft character, which is you know the stuffy scholar that's you know trying to do all the research and everything, and Michael's slowly he's slowly becoming that. You know he went to the library. He did research and all that stuff, but. You know, uh, he's reading this stuff and he's dismissive of it. While other characters will read it and go mad, he just puts it back in a box and you know he pockets a letter from it. You know that he, that his dad wrote um, <laughs> that basically he is supposed to read after something has happened yeah. to his dad. This is supposed to explain everything, and I I see it as kind of like the key to the rest of the text. One of the things that I found uh, interesting about Michael. Um, relating to what I call the box of confusion, <laughs> is that Michael really, he's not an unreliable as much as he's, I guess, probably an unstable narrator. And I think that comes from his 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 age. He's a youth. He's not, he's trying to like put things together, but, you know, it takes more time to like connect the dots for him. He's un he's volatile because yeah he's a twenty year old kid you know he's been held back in school you know knowledge wise he's far behind the game he's got you know crazy parents and you know the one girl that he's with which surprisingly you know there's a sexy scene he's actually you know he's actually able to you know perform and in a surprising scene of self reflection you know he's like can I even do this because you know he even mm -hmm. admits that you know I'm not a mature person or you know the, my lifestyle doesn't lead to this but you know the the girl that he's with you know does ass and everything all, all the major people in his life let's just be honest, are the worst influences on him. And uh, and it causes him to be, I like you said, unstable, volatile. He's not violent or anything. Although towards the end, though, he does kind of get like, uh, you know, he tells June to, you know, shut up and, you know, all that other stuff as, you know. Yeah, the which is surprisingly, it it is kind of shocking because it feels almost out of character, but it's like, all throughout the entire story, we're trying to find, okay, well, what path is he going to choose? It's like watching your kids grow up and you're like, well, I hope I've taught them well, you know, that they're going to select the right path. And and we feel this for Michael, wondering what path he's going to take. So it's, it's surprising when he is violent towards verbally violent towards well, June well, and the role that she's going to end up taking. In the cyclical story. It, well, and everything leading up to that point kind of portrays Michael as he's kind of a chicken. You know, he, mm -hmm. he runs the scenarios through his head of what he wants to do. I'm going to barge in my caravan. I'm going to tell dad what's up. You know, I'm going to... Go to, I'm going to go to work, and June will be there, and I'm going to do this. And he chickens out out of all this stuff. And it isn't until the very end when he actually sees the mask that is his parents that somehow or another the things start clicking. He realizes who he is, what he's supposed to do, and it's dark. And, yeah, he is, you know, on his through the 
the pathway through the the forest to meet what it basically is his destiny is he's no longer chicken you know he knows what's kind of going on what he needs to do but at the same time it's more malevolent dark yeah he's telling this girl that's actually giving him the time of day to you know be quiet shut up you're coming up me that type of thing um so it's an, it's it's an interesting um, character development in our in the Wilson story we had character development with Kathleen after she sees the veil she's forever changed by it you know seeing the truth Michael now looks upon his folks he's he's ignored the truth out of every opportunity you know even when he's in the library researching stuff he's kind of he, he, he only halfway takes it in you know he uh when confronted with the box of confusion as you put it you know he takes the letter but he doesn't even read it he's just going to save it for a letter but yeah every moment when confronted of truth he's pushed back on it now that he's confronted with the truth he is a changed person just a different type than compared to Crichton and uh kathleen yeah uh, i think there's two things that i took from this story that's uh, that I find as a common thread, actually, with the Wilson story. Two things. The first thing um, is obviously the nature aspect, the, the kind of grassroots to, the, to kind of those uh, roots with the land, which is very much folklore, and their tie to that. Um, we see that with Wilson, with the Pine Barrens, um, and we see that here with the local, um, the locale, the local village, the the ties there with the caravan and so forth. And pine trees everywhere in both and stories. And pine trees, yes. <laughs> Actually, that's funny you mentioned that. There were pine trees in both stories. Um, the second thing was, you know, I felt sad by Mac's uh, path after her experience. I felt kind of sad for her that you know, she's turned down a dark path. And I, I do feel a sense of sadness for Michael and for June, the fact that this cycle will continue. Yep. Um, it, it doesn't get broken. Uh, that was bad English, sorry. But, you know, the cycle is not broken for Michael and June. They are going to come into the fold and be part of this continuing story. Yeah, the, the, it's a secular story. Michael is going to wind up like his dad. And June is going to wind up like Michael's mom. You know, Michael's probably going to become a big, fat, blobby thing. And June will be, you know, reserved. Because she's probably reserved. I mean, Michael suspects because she's drugged. I don't think she's drugged. It's just, what do you do? You know, when you're kind of exposed to the... Tr what we talked about earlier, you kind of have two paths to do. Either you embrace her or you go insane. Well, mm -hmm. you know, I think Michael's mom is probably more on the... Not, not insane, but just comatose from it all. You know, like, well, what can I do? You know, the world is bigger than this. There's things I can't fathom. What, what's the point of it? And that's that's going to be June's ultimate fate. Despite despite her preparing for this as best as possible with LSD, because, you know, LSD is going to, you know, expand your horizons, man, and see realities aren't there. You know, she's going to get the real deal <laughs> ASAP. Um but uh, one one other quite a quick note, going back to the box of confusion, as you said, one of the other things that that scene accomplishes that I dig is it helps canonize Ramsey Campbell's Glacky uh, Elder God with the Cthulhu Mythos, um, because you know since they're all kind of mentioned all together, and I, again we talked about that way back when our first episode of the Resurrected podcast when we read Children of Glacky. Um, I'm sorry, the, the, the inhabitant of the lake is just 
damn good story. It <laughs> so really it, is. So it's nice, nice to to see it really canonized. You know, bringing that formally into the to the Lovecraft uh, fold. You know, a lot a lot of folks have their sandboxes. We talked about James Chambers earlier, and I know. You know, Pugmire had something in the Pacific Northwest. I always like seeing these, you know, different invented locales, you know, becoming canonized and becoming part of something kind of uh, big. Um, and that's really about all I have for uh, <laughs> the phases at Pine Dune. Other than, you know, rough start for a story. It accomplishes some good stuff. I'm pretty sure there's, you know, I'm always interested in Rene Girard's minetic theory. So, you know, the fact that Michael's going to become his dad, there's probably some mimesis involved there, so that might be an interesting take on a, a future paper or something. <laughs> well, on that note, I think we'll close our discussion of Cthulhu 2000. Uh, we'll take one more musical intermission before moving on to upcoming events. Welcome back. We'd like to thank ST Yoshi for providing the bumper for this episode's introduction. Yoshi is the leading academic on Lovecraft and weird fiction studies. He has hundreds of books to his name, and his current projects include uh, Lovecraft Letters Project, A History of Atheism, and also Letters of Ambrose Bierce and George Sterling. We wish him continued success. And in uh, upcoming events... Continuing our exploration of Wilson's writing, on episode 11 of HP Lovecast Presents Fragments, we'll review and analyze the filmic adaptation of The Keep. Woo! <laughs> that was theatrically released back in 1983 when you were a very small baby. <laughs> Directed by Michael Mann, this unusual film stars uh, Scott Glenn, Gabriel Byrne, Jurgen Prochnow, Alberta Watson, and Ian McClellan. And an excellent Tangerine Dream soundtrack. Yep, definitely. If you want to watch this film ahead of time, Amazon has it available on Prime. This episode will post on Sunday, July 18th. And on HP Lovecast Presents Transmissions, we'll spotlight two or three special guests as they discuss new or upcoming releases, as well as provide brief uh, readings. This episode will post on Saturday, July 31st. And we are excited for our August programming, which will be devoted to examining all things The King in Yellow. We'll explore James Chambers' recent anthology, Under Twin Suns, Alternate Histories of the Yellow Sign, published by Hippocampus Press. We'll also review a graphic novel adaptation of The King in Yellow, and at the end of the month, we'll interview a few of the writers from James Chambers' anthology. As a reminder, our episodes post on the first Sunday, the third Sunday, and the last day of the month. HP Lovecast is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com. And of course, you can also email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books that we've either edited or contributed to. If you feel like donating a dollar or two, we also have a coffee account. A link is provided in the show notes. As always, thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.